I think that if anyone walks around the city of Toronto, he or she will conclude that strange things happen in this city, I guess like any big city. Recently, there was a man on Young Street wearing a tiger suit. He had all the whole works. He had the stripes, even the whiskers, and a long tail. Here is a case of life imitating art, because he appeared as a character on one of those animated TV shows. While it is strange for a man to imitate an animal, undoubtedly we are all imitators. From our earliest state, we have been imitating. We learn to speak and act the way we were taught, or at least the way we saw our parents acted. We followed them. You see a little child who will put on his dad's shoe. They are 20 times the size of his tiny feet, but he puts on his dad's shoe and he treads around the house. A little girl will go before the mirror and she'll put on her mom's lipstick and other accoutrements that are there in her mom's cabinet. Wants to be like mom. We, we learn often by imitation. And even as adults, we are imitators. We watch videos, do-it-yourself videos. Somebody shows us how to build a deck, or how to paint a house, and we watch them and we replicate what they do. Many of us are excellent cooks, but we know the value of cookbooks. And so we find recipes that are there that somebody has tried and it's worked and we practice it. We are imitators. The Apostle John recognizes this and in the spiritual sphere, he calls Gaius to be an imitator of what is good. We find this in 3 John and verse 11. This book of 3 John is the shortest letter in the New Testament. It belongs among the most neglected books in the scriptures. It consists of three divisions. There is the opening greeting in verses 1 to 4, in which John addresses an individual. There are three different persons named Gaius in the scriptures. There is one of them who hosted Paul at, at Corinth in Romans 16, 23. There's one from Macedonia in Acts chapter 19, verse 29, who appeared to be one of Paul's companions. And there's a Gaius of Derbe in Acts 20, who was among the, the church leaders who took money for the church and brought it to the church in Jerusalem. It is not apparent that any of these would fit the Gaius that John addresses this letter to here in 3 John. What is clear, however, is that John thinks highly of him. And he begins in this introduction identifying himself as the elder 
to the beloved Gaius. Gaius is beloved, beloved by John, but ultimately he is beloved by God. You see, all believers are loved of God. They are loved by God who demonstrates his love. We notice that after the introduction, we come to the body of the epistle, which is verses 5 to 12. And there, John does a number of things. First of all, he reminds Gaius of the obligation to support missionaries of the gospel, verses 5 to 8. It appears that Gaius was helping missionaries who had come from Jerusalem, from John. They were coming to him. He was caring for them and sending them on their way. And he was encouraging him to continue in this task of supporting missionaries. And he reminds him in verse 8 that by so doing, he becomes a partner in the work of the truth. In verses 9 and 10, he warns against a man called Diotrephes, one who opposed the apostle John. And in verse 11, he points out and gives him this calling to imitate what is good and commends Demetrius to him as an example, one who perhaps bore this, the letter to Gaius. And then there is a concluding word in verse 13 and 14 in which John speaks of his imminent arrival in the area where Gaius lived. But I want us to look particularly at verse 11. And first of all, there is an exhortation not to imitate evil, but to imitate what is good. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. For the fourth time, he addresses Gaius as beloved. You see that in verse 1. You see in verse 2. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. He's praying for him that he might know prosperity physically and materially and spiritually, that the blessing, the fullness of God's blessing may rest upon him. And he tells us that he, he rejoices because of the truth. He walks in the truth. He lives consistently with the revelation of God. And then he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, you do faithfully what you do for the brethren and for the strangers. He is the beloved of God. And Christ has shown his love for him and for all believers by sending his, his son into the world. So John says, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so love us, we ought to love one another. In 1 John 4, verses 10 and 11. He is the beloved of God. But now notice that he warns him in verse 11. Do not imitate what is evil. The verb to imitate, mimeomai, occurs four times in the New Testament. Twice in 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 and 9. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica. Believers who appeared not to want to work and were engaged in being busy bodies. And Paul writes to them and he says, 
for you yourself know how you ought to follow us. That's the word to imitate. For we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. And what Paul tells the Thessalonians is that when he was among them, he did not depend upon them. He was working, and he was giving them an example of the need to work hard. He was giving them an example that they should follow, that they should imitate. That's the term that is used here twice in verses 7 to 9. It is also used in Hebrews 13, verse 7. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow or imitate, considering the outcome of their conduct. It is this word that he uses in verse 11 when he says, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil. John then declares negatively what Gaius must not imitate or follow. They must not imitate kakos, that is evil. It is not the normal term that the New Testament use, uses for evil, which is pornea, a more generic and general term. But he says he must not imitate what is evil. That is what is morally and ethically displeasing to God and that which is damaging to another. He must avoid all that deviates from the will of God that might be classified as evil. Anything that is against the character of God and the revelation of God is evil. He must not imitate evil. And the term imitate simply means to follow. It means that he must not conform his conduct to that which is evil. He must not follow evil. Now, when John tells Gaius in verse 11, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, he gives him a specific example of the evil that he ought not to imitate. The evil in the form of the behavior of one man known as Diotrephes. If you look at the text, you will see in verse 9, he speaks of this man. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words, and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbid those who, wishes, who wish to do, putting them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil. You see, it is in this context of writing about this man, Diotrephes, that he tells them not to imitate evil. It is interesting as he describes Diotrephes, he talks about the condition of this man. And in fact, he says of him in verse Nine, I wrote to you, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence. Now, in the original, the 
phrase, who loves to have the preeminence, comes first. In other words, even before John describes the name of this man, even before he tells us who this man is, the first thing he tells about him is that he loves to be first. Then he says diatrophies. When he says that this man loved to be first, he is describing a persistent behavior because it is a present participle This man, loving to be first. It was an ongoing characteristic of this man. It was a primary mindset or characteristic of the atrophies. He wanted to be first. And secondly, it describes the reality that he was governed and ruled by a power-hungry, self-seeking attitude. He wanted to be top dog. He wanted to be first. In every situation, it was his voice that must carry the day. Surely, he seemed undeterred by our Lord's own condemnation of a self-seeking spirit. Remember when the two brothers, the two sons of Zedibee came wanting to be on the right hand, on the left hand of the Lord in the kingdom. And our Lord Jesus said to him, and said to them, but whoever desires To become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him just let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The example of the Lord Jesus Christ is that he did not seek attention for himself. He did not put himself forward to be first, but rather gave himself as a servant and as a sacrifice for his people. Nevertheless, Diotrephes wanted to be first. He wanted to rule. He wanted his voice to have the sway in all the major decisions of the church. Secondly, John goes on to describe him, not only the condition of the man, but his activities. He says, Diotrephes does not receive us. He says, this man loves to be first, therefore I will Call to mind his deed, which he does. That is when he comes. He prays against us malicious words. He does not receive us. Well, what does it mean? It means that he did not welcome the missionaries who came from John. This man did not acknowledge the authority of John, who was the last apostle. And by not, not accepting the, uh, and, uh, and receiving and acknowledging the authority of John, he also rejected the authority of Christ. Because it is the Lord Jesus Christ whom John represented. This man, not only did he sought to be first, rejected John's apostle, he verbally attacked John and his companions. He was prating, using unkind and unjust and wicked words. In other words, he spoke disparagingly, injuriously, and nonsensically against John and the missionaries. What was he doing? Not only did he reject John's authority, but he was deliberately, by the statements that he was making, undermining the authority of John. He was, in fact, saying hostile things. He was actually saying malicious things, using slander 
to tear down the character of John. And so he says that when he comes, he will call, his de- call to mind his deeds. He will remember what he has done. It, it's a very gentle term, gentle, euphemistic description of discipline that will be exercised when he comes. Now, not only is this man then attacking John, not receiving him, and furthermore, aggressively attacking, but he goes on to say that this man does not receive the brethren, the missionaries who have been sent from John, he would not receive them ostensibly in his home, And neither neither would he receive them in the church. And for the Christians who wished to receive these missionaries, this man would put them out of the church. You You need to understand that in the first century, this whole matter of hospitality was of great importance. People didn't have the kind of five star hotels that we now have. If if you go into a, a city today, if someone invites you to be a preacher in a church anywhere in North America, more likely they're going to put you in some hotel, and depending on how much they have, they put you in a motel. But at the end of the day, you're going to be hosted in some place where where the host will not be embarrassed. Well, they didn't have those hotels and motels to put people. And furthermore, even if there were places of lodging, the missionaries themselves did not have the money and neither the church. And so it fell to the members of the church, to receive missionaries, to feed them, and to house them, and to encourage them, to treat them as servants of God. Now, here you have these missionaries sometimes traveling enormous distances on foot and arriving in a town looking for Christians. But this man, Diotrephes, says, you will not receive them in your home. And if you do, you are expelled from the church. Now, I must confess that Diotrephes had a lot of power. Anybody today in our church try to, you know, remove people, we wouldn't stand for it. So that's why Baptist is congregational government. It's not a one-man show. But certainly, this man seemed to have a lot of power. He could take out your membership. He could get rid of you if he wanted, if you did anything to displease him. Well, this was a sign of evil. And John says he would confront him when he comes. He says, do not imitate what is evil. And it is, it is that self-seeking and arrogant attitude displayed by this man, Diotrephes. But John then exhorts him to imitate the converse, that is, what is good. Verse 11, beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. And here, the command leaves him, as one writer says, with no option. He must imitate what is morally and spiritually Good and pleasing to God. He must do that that which is harmonious with the will of God and the character of God. More specifically, in commanding him to imitate what is good, he presents John, or he presents Gaius, with an example of what is good. He has now presented him with an example of what is evil in this man, Diotrephes. Now he presents a positive example of good that he must follow. And that's what you find in verse 12, where Demetrius uh, is introduced without any explanation. Demetrius has a good testimony from all. He places before him this man, Demetrius. And some, most commentators believe that he was the one who carried the letter from John. 
But in speaking of him, this man clearly was the opposite of Diotrephes. He's a man who manifested, himself, manifested self-sacrifice and love rather than self-seeking and lovelessness. And John includes a threefold testament or testimony to the character of this man, Demetrius. First of all, he says he had a good testimony from everyone who knew him. He lived in an exemplary way so that those who knew him testified that he was a child of God. And secondly, John says the truth, witness to him. And here he personifies truth. What it means is that he lived in agreement and accord with the scriptures so that scripture themselves testified that this man's faith was genuine. And third, John says that he himself bore witness to Demetrius. Demetrius has a good testimony from all, that is from outsiders, and from the truth itself, from scripture, because he lives in agreement with it, and we also bear witness. He's speaking of himself and the community that is with him. And you know that our testimony is true. And so he tells them, do not imitate what is evil. Anything that is displeasing to God, and particularly the behavior exhibited by Diotrephes. But he is to imitate what is good, all that is pleasing to God, and particularly that what, what is demonstrated by Demetrius. The New Testament places great emphasis upon imitating what is good. Paul, for instance, in writing to the Thessalonians in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians and verse 6, he tells these believers, and you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Writing to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1. He could say to the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 14, For you, brethren, became imitators of the church of God or the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered many things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. Paul would exhort the Ephesians, Therefore be imitators of God as their children, and walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. What I'm saying is then that when John calls upon Gaius to imitate what is good and not to imitate what is evil, this is not some tangential truth, nor is it some minor fact, but it is part of a biblical motif that Christians are to imitate that which is good. So we note then the command not to imitate evil, but to imitate good. A command which I'm saying falls within a broader teaching on the need for Christians to follow good and godly example. But we also notice in verse 11 the rationale 
why they should not imitate evil, but imitate what is good. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He's now going to tell us why. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. There's a chiasm here. You know, if you look at verse 11, you begin with evil. Do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. You see that? Order, evil, followed by good. Then in the, the next part, part B of the verse, he who does good is of God. The order is changed. So in the first part of the sentence, you have evil followed by good. In the second part of the sentence, you have good followed by evil. And the reason that you have what is called a, a chiasm here, it's because he wants to draw attention to this matter of good and evil. Do not imitate evil, but imitate good. That which is pleasing, that which God approves of. Why? He begins in part B of verse 11, he who does good is of God. Why should Gaius imitate good? Precisely because he who habitually practices good gives evidence regarding his true spiritual identity. That by continually doing good, that which is pleasing and approved of God, that individual reveals that he's been born of God. And to be born of God is the same as being born again. It is to possess eternal life. John chapter 3 speaks of being born of God or the new birth as a supernatural work of the Spirit. It is a work that is compared to the work of the wind which blows invisibly and mysteriously but genuinely. This this. New birth, described by John, refers to a transformed heart. It is to be changed. It is to be given new life. It is to be made brand new by the Spirit of God. It is to be transformed in life. You see, he says, the man who does good reveals that he has been born of God, that is a new creature. And you need to know that no man, no individual will ever go to heaven unless he or she has been converted. That even if we grew up in Christian homes and lived moral lives, we must be born of God. We need a new heart. We must be transformed. You need to recognize that religion does not save. It is a relationship with Christ, and it takes a supernatural work of God in the heart. So dramatic, so radical, it's like being born all over again. And he says the man who consistently does good is born of God. The reason then that we should not imitate evil but imitate good because the one who imitates good reveals that he's born of God. And there are certain signs that John tells us that will follow us. There are certain evidences that will be true of our lives that will distinguish us as those who are born of God. If you ask John, who are those who are born of God? He will tell you at least three 
signs from the book of 1 John. He says first, those who are born of God do not practice sin. So in 1 John 3, 9, he says, whoever has been born of God does not sin. He, he does not mean in 1 John 3, 9 that whoever is born of God never sins. Because he says if any man sins, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so what he means here when he says whoever has been born of God does not see, sin, he means whoever is born of God does not continually live or habitually practice sin. Whoever is born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, cannot live in sin, because he's been born of God. The second evidence that one is born of God is that one confesses Christ has come in the flesh. In 1 John 4, 1 to 2, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And when he says of God, is of God, he means that person has been born of God. So there are two signs of one who is born of God. He does not live in sin. Secondly, he confesses the historical Christ, the Christ who is God in flesh. Third, he says the one who is born of God loves. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So John now reveals a fourth sign, a fourth evidence of one who is born of God. A one who is born of God does good. His life is lived in a manner that is consistent with the character of God. He does the things that are delightful and pleasing in the sight of God. That person demonstrates that he has been born anew. You see, a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. And a good tree does not produce bad fruit. So when a man or woman consistently seeks to do the will of God and does what is right and pleasing, it's because first and foremost there has been a change of the heart. You see, the unbeliever does not have a motivation to do right. He lives in sin. He lives in darkness. In fact, he confuses good with evil. But the man of God, the man who is born of God, who has been changed, desires what is right and good and seeks to please God. So John says, listen, the reason one should not imitate evil but imitate good because the one who does good shows that he is a new person. He's changed. He's been converted. The converse is true. The one who does evil, he says, has not seen God. Has not seen God. And so the reason one must avoid doing what is evil it is because if anyone practices evil, he or she reveals that they've never experienced God. They've never come into close and saving relationship with God. They have not been changed. They do not know God. They have not seen God. does not mean that they have not seen him with their eyes. But it just means that they have no intimate fellowship or relationship with God. John makes a similar statement when in 1 John 3, 6, he says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifested. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. 
What John does in verse 11 is that he elevates this matter of avoiding shunning evil and practicing good above mere morality. John is saying you shouldn't just avoid evil and do what is good because this is right and because this is the way people should live. He's saying you ought to avoid evil, you ought to practice good because this is a matter of your eternal destiny. It says a lot about you how you live. How you live tells whether you know God or whether you do not know him. And so this is a matter then of eschatological importance because one's conduct reflects one's spiritual state. I want to make a few observations here. Some years ago, uh, I can't remember when, but there's a man who was selling watches. In fact, he was selling a number of things, designer items, and selling them rather cheaply. And he had some watches on display which he was selling and wanted to get me to buy. And many of them, he said, were made in Switzerland, the best of the best, creme de la creme. You know that's true, right? And he was selling a Rolex for just under $100. And I was actually amazed. And I said to him, are you sure this is a real Rolex? And he was very annoyed. He said, I don't wear knockoffs, and I don't sell knockoffs. Well, clearly I didn't buy it because <laughs> I didn't think it was genuine. We do not like, in often many times, imitation. We won't buy an imitation purse. Michael Cole or something like that? Core? Yeah, you know who I'm talking about. We don't, we don't buy knockoffs. We like genuine article, the real deal. But at the end of the day, you need to recognize that we who are Christians are not called to be original. We are called to be imitators, to follow the calling of the Christian is not to go ahead of Jesus, not to blaze his own trail, not to find a new way and concoct his own religion. He's called to follow. In fact, the early Christians were called followers of the way. In fact, the word memetes, disciple, means follower. You see, you and I are called to follow. And in so doing, because we are following, we must be distinguish between good and bad models. If we are going to follow that which is good, we must be distinguished between what is a good and what is a bad model. Paul instructed the Thessalonians. He says, take note of anyone who does not obey his instructions and have nothing to do with them. Now, having said that, if we are going then to be imitators... We must be discerning. Not all models are to be followed. And it means that not all Christian, so-called Christian models are to be followed. Because there are attitudes, even within the church, that must not be followed. I want you to know that the atrophies 
was not an atheist. He was not an outsider. And neither do I think that he was a false teacher. Because had he been a false teacher, John wouldn't even be talking about this fellow apart from saying get rid of him. Put him outside. John does not say excommunicate him. So clearly, Diotrephes was a professing believer. But he was a wrong model. He was not demonstrating the humility and placing others before himself. And so when you and I look for godly models, we must be able to distinguish within the church those who represent Christ and those who do not and choose godly models. We must imitate what is good, not only in the church, but we must indeed see what is evil in the world and avoid it. We must not imitate the impiety and the immorality of the world. We must not imitate the world which seeks to advance itself. A world which refuses to submit to Christ. A world which makes money and possession the most important things. We must not imitate the world that has very little regard for the Lord's day. It's amazing how many people find Sundays to be the, place, the time to do everything they couldn't do in the week. But it is the Lord's day. A day when we are consecrated to the worship of God. My beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but imitate what is good. And you and I need to look at the world and to be able to draw a line between the things that are pleasing to God and the things that are displeasing. We must not follow the sins of others. We must take a stand that we will imitate only the things that are approved of God. We must not be conformed to this world. You see, conformity to the world is imitation of the world. There needs to be distinction. But if we are not to imitate what is evil, we are to imitate what is good. Paul says to the Philippians, brothers, join me, or join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So Paul is saying that they are to imitate godly example as they are seen in his behavior and in other believers. But fundamentally, if we are to imitate what is good, we are ultimately to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Lord Jesus is the standard of good. Now I know some of you discerning will say, well, what about the rich man who came to Jesus and said, good teacher, and Jesus said to him, there is no man good but God. Our Lord was not there, however, denying his goodness. But he was simply calling the man to task. Do you recognize that when you call me good, you're calling me God? Are you serious about this? Or are you merely using platitudes to refer to me? The Bible calls the Lord Jesus Christ the good teacher and the good shepherd. The one who went about doing good. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ is the standard of good. And when we talk about good, we're talking about the excellence and perfection of Christ. Christ is good because he possesses all virtue in their absolute state of perfection. That if Jesus Christ has love, he has love to the perfect degree. If he has holiness, then he's perfect in holiness. So he's ultimately good. And if we are to imitate what is good, yes, we must imitate godly people around us, but it is only as they imitate Christ. The final example for us is Jesus. 
we are followers not ultimately of men, but of Jesus. And we need to have before us a picture of the goodness of Christ. A picture of the supreme authority of Christ. And the supreme righteousness of Christ. We are to make him our chief pattern and our chief example. And we must follow him. Now there are ways in which we will follow Christ who is the good. The one who is beneficial. The one who is excellent in his being. First of all, we must follow him in his relations to others. What did Jesus do? He demonstrated sacrificial love. He says to the disciples, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Here's a standard. Go love one another. But how, Lord? As I have loved you. But how have you loved us? You have loved us sacrificially. Our Lord Jesus Christ set himself before the disciples as an example of sacrificial love. And fundamentally, he loved them so much that he gave his life for them. It's a very curious statement in 1 John as we are called to imitate the Lord. He says, love has been perfected amongst us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. 1 John 4, verse 17. But that latter statement, as he is, so are we in this world. It's a context in which John is speaking to the believers about the things that give them confidence. And he's saying that this is how you know you're children of God. You're children of God because you confess Christ has come in the flesh. You're children of God because you possess the Holy Spirit. You can read the context of 1 John 4 later. You're children of God because you love. And then he says, love has been perfected amongst us in this. Love has come to fruition. It's come to development in us. In this way, what, what way? That we may have boldness in the day of judgment. In other words, he's saying we have come to know the love of God. And we have expressed our love for him. And love is perfected, matured in us. That we have boldness in the day of judgment. The, the way we know that our love for God has matured and God's love for us is complete is because we are looking to the day of judgment and we are looking towards that day in confidence and not in fear. We have tasted the love of God and we love him. And therefore, we look to the day of judgment in boldness. I want you to know, it takes a genuine Christian to look to the judgment seat of Christ without living in fear. And so God's love has been demonstrated to them because they're able to look to the day of judgment in boldness. And they do so because this says, because as he is, so are we in the world. We are living like Jesus lived. Not perfectly, but surely we are reflecting him in this world. As he is, so are we in the world. It's a call to imitate him. And when you go out into the world to school or to university or to work, 
when you go back into your community, as he is, so are you in the world. An example following the model, the tupas, the sign, the mark of Jesus Christ. He showed to others this sacrificial love. He showed sacrificial service. What did he say in John 13 after he had washed the disciples' feet? I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Now, he wasn't telling them to go around and everybody you see who's walking in sandals and whose feet are muddy and dusty, grab them and wash their feet. He wasn't saying that. He's saying, I want you to internalize and exhibit the attitude that I've shown of, humil of humble serving, sacrificial serving, not thinking anything is beneath you to do for the good of another. You see something of Christ that we are to follow in his relation to others. Sacrificial love, sacrificial service. We see something of his relationship to self that we are to imitate. And perhaps one of the most well-known passages is that which calls us to imitate his humility. So in Philippians 2, 5 and 8, Paul says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. You and I are to imitate the Lord in humility that the king who spoke the world into being, the king who upholds the world by his power, the one who is Lord of heaven, before whom the celestial beings and before whom the angels are constantly worshipping, this king of glory did not consider it beneath his dignity to come into the world and to take flesh and to humble himself by becoming our servant, and to even take a step lower, to die on that cruel cross. And if the king of glory could humble himself, then we are to humble ourselves, not to think highly of ourselves beyond what we should. We are to imitate him in relationship to self. We are to imitate him in enduring suffering and cross-bearing. And so Peter could say, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who... When he was reviled, did not revile in return. And when he suffered, did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. 1 Timothy 2, 21 to 23. If there's any area in which it is extremely difficult to imitate the Lord Jesus is in suffering, especially when we are the recipients of unjust treatment. It's one thing to know that we have done wrong and we are getting what we deserve. 
But it's quite another thing when you are innocent and when you've done no wrong and people are lying and attacking you and attacking your character, treating you badly just because of who you are and who you profess to know and love. And yet we are called to imitate him in suffering, not by cursing and reviling, not by threatening, but committing ourselves to him who judges justly. Committing ourselves to God who will make all things right. We are to imitate him in our relationship not only to self, but in relationship to God. How did Jesus live in relation to the Father? He lived in the presence of God. Here is one who delighted in God. The psalmist says that in his presence there is fullness of joy. And that his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus exhibited this tremendous delight in God's presence. He was found over and over again in the place of worship and in the place of prayer. He wasn't doing it just because he needed help. He was doing it because he wanted to be there. He prayed because he delighted in it. Because he delighted in communing with God. He exhibited submission. Not my will. But thy will be done. He lived in righteousness before God. And all of us are to imitate him. To look at his life. To meditate upon scripture. Meditate on all that he has commanded the apostles. And by the way, when I talk about meditating upon the life of Christ, I am not suggesting you to only read the gospels. Because everything that is commanded by the apostles are found in Christ preeminently. So that if, if the scriptures tell us that we're to set our minds on things above and not on things of the world, then who did that? Who did that more perfectly than Jesus? What I'm, what I'm saying is that we are to meditate on Jesus Christ as he reveals himself, whether in example or in teaching. We are to have him as our goal and have him as our model. We are to imitate him in dealing with one another, in dealing with ourselves, and in dealing with God. There are reformed men, good reformed men, who demonstrate palpable unease with this whole matter of imitation. Imitation of godly models and imitation of Christ. And they have valid reasons for being uneasy about the call to be imitators. First of all, there is a teaching that says that Christ died on the cross as an example. That, that, that is, there are those who have taught the cross is merely a moral example. It's an example of God's love and we are to imitate that love. And so they caution against this matter of imitation because others have reduced the work of Christ to merely a call for imitation. But secondly, they have a second valid reason. That is, the call to imitate can easily descend into work righteousness. 
So long as I try to do the things that I saw in the life of Jesus, then I'm okay. And clearly, both these positions are wrong. We must know that when the scriptures are calling us to imitate what is good, and ultimately to imitate good as it is revealed in Jesus, this imitation, this life of imitation, presupposes that one knows Christ first as our Redeemer. And only after we have come to know him as our Redeemer, our Savior, can we then become imitators of Christ. What I'm arguing is that you and I must first of all be saved, be washed in the blood of Christ. We must first of all be delivered. We must all be transformed. We must be saved before we can become imitators. And secondly, the call to imitation is not merely, as Calvin tells us, to view Christ as out there, as a model somewhat out there that we are trying to follow, but imitation takes place in union with Christ and in communion with Christ. It is because we are in him and it is because the resurrection power that flowed through Jesus and raised him from the dead, that same resurrection power is at work in us. It is by the grace of God and by the power of God that we are able to imitate. It is not a matter of our works. But it is God's almighty power, that same supernatural power that raised Jesus from the dead, that same power conforms us. May God help us that we might imitate good, but not just metaphysical good. The incarnated goodness of God in Jesus Christ. No, my friends, to imitate good is our calling in this world. It's not an option. It's not an option. You must choose today. There's a divide. There's a two ways you may go. You may imitate the world and its evil, or you may imitate Christ and good. But there is no neutrality. You must take one road. My dear friends, imitate what is good. Imitate Christ. Depend on his power and on his grace. And as you do that, know that that is evidence that you have come to know God, that you are born from above, and that you are on your way to glory. May Jesus help you and bless you for his name's sake. Amen.